Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Who's Talking, the podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. I'm Michael. And I'm Maggie. And this week we're going to be talking about Chapter 2 of Doctor Who Flux, War of the Sontarns. In the Crimean War, the Doctor discovers the British army fighting a brutal alien army of Sontarans as Yaz and Dan are thrown deeper into a battle for survival. What is the Temple of Atropos? Who are the Mori? So for once, Maggie, you and I have not actually talked about uh, how we felt about the episode before we started recording. So before we get into anything, in like a, like a brief spoiler light way, how'd you feel about the episode? I liked it. I appreciated that there weren't eight different storylines going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like a particularly standout episode to me but it was it was good it was a solid episode yeah i think i i think i feel about the same way i i ranked it a little bit under last week's episode like there there's stuff i like about this episode more but there's also stuff i like about it less absolutely but i still thought it was i still thought it was really solid my my biggest problems which we'll get into a little bit more were that i felt it didn't really do the historical stuff that I wanted it to do and I didn't love splitting up the cast again yeah that definitely makes sense and it was very the Crimean War is a very British specific topic like it's just something that you don't learn about in American history classes and they didn't explore it at all yeah so it's something that I knew very little of just that it was a war and it was around the same time as the American Civil War and that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge so on that note, that was the first thing I wanted to hit on, which was all of the the historical stuff. The so the Crimean War, Mary Seacole, and all of that stuff. So I think we're both on kind of the same page that I mean, this could have been any war. For for the amount of detail they went into it, they could have just flipped a coin and picked any war. Except that they clearly wanted to use Mary Seacole. Which is interesting because they didn't do much in the way of explaining who Mary Seacole yeah. was. <laughs> It was really like the briefest like bullet points of the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page as to who she was. And that was kind of it. And so much of so much of the reason that character works at all is the performance from Sarah Powell rather than anything the script does with her. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because if they had given us a little bit more context outside of, you know, Florence Nightingale, Crimean War. British Hotel, it probably could have been really compelling and interesting to see the Doctor's interactions with this character, because she's also a Doctor. And if we knew a little bit more about her, we could see different aspects of how each of them do their Doctor stuff. And it could have been a really cool like juxtaposition of these two characters. And I, 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 building off of that, it just, in, a, in an era that has done, like, gone so far out of its way to explore, not necessarily, like, lesser known historical events, but maybe not the ones that you always hear about, but explore them with some amount of depth, it is really sort of disappointing to not do that here. Like, I'm thinking of Demons of the Punjab, where they, they went, like, really, the whole thing was about the event less so than the alien and and they, they they went back to doing sort of actual historical episodes and this one just felt like a sci-fi it felt like 
the historicals we've been getting for a while, which were just sci-fi stories. But here's a here's William or not not William. Here's Winston Churchill, but otherwise has like nothing to do with what's going on. Yeah, like you said, it could have been set in any war, except they wanted to give us the pretty dresses. But they only gave us the one pretty dress, so it's like, what's the point? This is this is kind of gonna be a recurring theme for me. I did not love having two simultaneous Santaran plot lines. I just felt like we were never in either the Crimean War stuff or the modern day stuff to really like get what they were trying to do. It had to be just explained to us in dialogue that we didn't even hear it from the Santarans what they were doing. It was just the Doctor and Dan found it in the computer, unless I'm forgetting something. I think Dan's parents had a little bit of uh, an exposition moment, but aside from that, you're right. It was just weird. For for something called War of the Santarans, the Santarans were on screen for like 10 minutes. And also, they weren't, because they were such a minimal presence, they weren't intimidating. And I don't know how much of that has to do with just the existence of Strax and the previous Santaran exposure that New Who has gotten, or if they just genuinely didn't write a compelling villain here. So I think it's a I think it's a mixture of both. I thought that these ones were a little bit more maybe menacing rather than threatening when compared to Strax. But this is a problem I think the Santarans have always had where they walk this really fine line between like brutality and camp. And it's so easy for them to end up in the the comedy, you know, not threatening side of that line, as opposed to really walking it. But there were parts of this that I thought were kind of, not necessarily scary, but brutal. Like parts of the battle where they were fighting the British army during the war, Oh yeah, I, I thought were particularly brutal. And I actually, for the first time, I think in New Who, felt that the Santarans were actually dangerous as opposed to just sort of bumbling idiots. But then most of the rest of the time, they were just quickly being knocked out by a frying pan or just not on screen at all. Which, frying pans, who knew? (laughs) I mean, I will say, like, I love a good gag, and that was a great gag, so I'm not that mad about that. Oh, it's a fantastic gag. It's just really funny, because now I just... Where is the fan art of Dan and Flynn Rider (laughs) getup? It's got to exist somewhere. Do you think that Dan has seen Tangled and was just, when he's hitting the Santarn, he's like, hmm, this is my big Flynn Rider moment. I don't know, because... I mean, I guess he's a little old to have seen Tangled, Yeah, they they don't really have, they haven't really shown us his family structure outside of his parents. So I don't know if he has small children in his life, or even like 20-year-olds in his life. On the subject of Dan and his you know, family. I love his parents. (laughs) All like five minutes of them. I adore them. Oh my gosh. They are wonderful. That was just so much fun. I think just everything about Dan continues to just be really fun. It is. These aren't people who take life crazy seriously and are like weighed down by society's general shenanigans of society being awful and weighing you down. Like, these are clearly, this is a family that loves each other, and you can tell that the parents have been together for a long time, (laughs) which is always just wonderful to see. It's great, because it doesn't feel like 
the way other parents we've got them they show up on screen they make a comment oh are you dating the doctor and then they just like offer food and leave yeah i think i I said last week that dan had this like lived in authenticity to him and i think the same thing is really true for his parents where they 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 don't feel like they're just there to make a gag or something they they feel like even though you only see them for a hot second you you can see just all of the history between you know his parents as a couple and as between them and him as a you know family unit and it's just that immediate hit of like they feel like real people without it feeling like the script is trying to make them feel that way yeah it feels more like more like donna and her mother and wilf than rose and her parents or yaz and her parents yeah i just i feel like it, they're just it's just effortless i just inherently believe it that they're family because they feel like family they feel like a family even though i don't live in liverpool i feel like i know people like them yeah they could they could be anybody's family i kind of wish they'd gone with him onto the ship though that they continued we'd had more of them you know what i mean yes but i think that if they had gone with him we would not have gotten the incredible puns that we got that's a that's a good point that's a really good point actually because oh my gosh dan was just everything out of his mouth was hysterical he was on fire gonna walk right out of here (laughs) i'm really curious how much of that is coming from john bishop as a stand-up comedian versus the script I, i i would just be curious to know what to what level are they given the freedom to improvise I don't know. I just, that Japanese food crack was just (laughs) so not like Chibnall. Right. And it was so welcome. It was, it's just, it's, it's so nice to have episodes where Doctor Who just gets to be fun. And I think that's sort of where this episode sort of tripped up because you had the very serious Crimean stuff. Yeah. And then you had the mystery with Yaz and then the fun stuff with Dan, as opposed to just, allowing it all to be mystery and fun yeah i i'm glad there are less than eight subplots this week and i think three two to three is a happy ground to be in i'm just not sure that all three of them and the way they intermingle with each other were quite they weren't quite executed right yet they didn't need to be as tonally distinct as they were yeah and I and I still I still would argue that maybe we didn't need two different eras of Santarans. We could have just had the Doctor and Dan dealing with Santarans, and then Yaz and Vinder dealing with the other thing. And I think it would have made for a better Santaran story, and maybe even a better whatever the hell's going on in that temple story. Absolutely. And speaking of the temple, the temple of a Atro- what is it? A Atropos. Yeah. Atropos. It's funny. The second they said that name, I was like, wait, I know that name. And I was trying to rack my brain through all of the previous episodes of Doctor Who to try and figure out where I had heard of Atropos before. Um, Nope, nope. Different science fiction time traveling show. Which one? (laughs) Atropos was on uh, Legends of Tomorrow for a minute. Uh, That makes sense. But it's it's interesting because with uh, with Atropos is um, and her sisters, you've got Clotho and Lycesis. And they are the three fates. And 
I think the concept of fate is something so it, it is the thing that the time lords do you know they're not people who interfere they don't adjust fate that is they let what happens happen so the idea of them potentially interacting with either the fates or with people who worship the people who weave the fates has serious potential for a time lord story i i would agree that i think i think there's a lot of potential and i'm i i am curious to see where it goes i'm also just you know how when you're watching like a any really heavily serialized show and the first like half of the season is always super frustratingly vague because they don't want to play their hand yet yes that's exactly how i felt for that entire subplot where there's just like no character-based reason for swarm and azure to be so vague about what they're doing like the doctor gets there at the end of the episode and they just blatantly refuse to tell her anything about what's going on even though they are very obviously the kind of characters who are itching to do a monologue. Which I think just reinforces this whole swarm potentially might be the ma- uh, another regeneration of the master theory that I've seen going around, which I mentioned last week. But a character who likes to be vague and mysterious for the sake of just being annoying and then eventually getting to that monologue and having it pay off and, you know, it's the big show-stopping scene it's very very master yeah i was just annoyed by it like i understand what they're doing and i and i'm not asking them to you know tell me the plot of episode six in the middle of episode two but it was just i wish they could have found a slightly better balance between being vague and being too open it was a lot of words that didn't mean anything yet yep because they haven't been given meaning and it was like, it was like an exposition dump, but it wasn't explaining anything. And they could have done that a lot better. They could have, instead of just giving us mystery, they could have given us teases. And I, I guess this kind of boils down to a problem I always have with, in particular, this era, but it's been a problem before, of, of the, the telling and not showing, where if, you know, if Yaz and Vinder throughout the episode had kind of slowly, you know, stumbled upon these various things and had to kind of work it out for themselves versus the magical glowing triangle just telling them who the mori were and that time is dangerous and that the mori have to control time somehow like i i I just wish maybe it didn't have to be an immediate exposition dump followed by a bunch of characters being vague about what they're doing there and the glowing triangle served relatively no purpose they were just there to get yaz and vinder from point a to point b when they would have gotten there anyway because yaz actually showed some agency in those scenes where she was clearly taking charge and like was going to investigate whether or not the golden triangle had led her there exactly like anybody who is put in a situation where there is two directions they could go in and no clue where they are you're gonna pick a direction and start walking yeah I guess the problem was that Chibnall wrote himself into a wall because before the Golden Triangle arrived, you had a, a Joseph Williamson, I think, uh, the guy from Liverpool last episode, who's building the tunnels, is just randomly in the, ton- in the temple, and Yaz meets up with him, and they have that discussion about, like, what year is it? And, and Joseph 
doesn't seem remotely like phased that he might not be in his year and he's like uh i gotta go back and figure this out bye so i guess the golden triangle had to arrive to stop yaz from just following him because i feel like that's what she would have done in that moment to was to follow the mystery down the other hallway that's true but they could have there were definitely other ways to get around that to cause Yaz not to be able to follow him. I mean, you could have just had a wall slide into place, Indiana Jones style. Or maybe Vinder from the other room could have just like yelled help or something. Yeah, somebody could have tripped. And she would 100% would have gone after the person who yelled help rather than the strange old man walking away from her. Yeah, because that's who Yaz is as a person. But yeah, I, ju- I just, I wish that that whole subplot had been a little bit more character driven rather than plot driven i mean the plot is interesting it was just like i don't know what it is yet and so it's it only works because it's interesting not because it works yeah it would have been better to see them discovering as opposed to hearing a lecture and vinder could have really used like anything to give him something to do vinder is currently like season 11 Yaz, in terms of the only things we know about him are things that we've been told about him because he's not really been given a chance to do anything yet. He hasn't. I have absolutely no idea anything about him. He spouted a bunch of words about his rank, and I was like, yeah, sure, okay. I know that Vinder is his last name. Yeah. I know that he's done something. There was something he did in his past that he's shameful for, which I guess presumably is why he was sent to this you know, remote outpost. Because Swarm starts taunting him like, oh, are you going to redeem yourself from this thing you did? That, that's, that's what I mean about the vagueness. Like, there is no reason for Swarm to have been that vague when both he and Vinder know exactly what Vinder did. That's true. And he knows that Yaz would have not had any idea what it was anyway. But it was just, I think, I think that was, that kind of vagueness was even, was way more frustrating to me than being vague about what the Mori is. Because, like, we're going to find that out. I un- I understand that's the... But it's like, why are characters being vague about things they know other characters know? It's because they don't want to tell the audience yet. But that's, like, it's really lazy. But they lazy. need to tell the audience yeah. so they can establish the character and give us a reason to either root for the character or root for him to fail. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure they're going to tell us what Vinder did. Then it's going to be a big plot twist in, like, three episodes. Well, sure, but they until then, he's just going to be there. Yeah. And it's there's really no point in having a character that's just there. You need a character that you have opinions about. I think even, like, even if you are going to, like, withhold that information, right, then, then perhaps you need to make a decision that he is actively trying to hide it. Like, something that suggests more than just like if he's trying to put on like a like a front of being a good guy when he's a bad guy or whatever. You know what I mean? Then he would then it would give him some kind of thing to pull him and again give us opinions about him. Cuz yeah. as it is, they have him in the same danger that Yaz is in and about to die. And I really couldn't care if he died or not. No. They're like and Yaz's new friend and I'm just like, okay. <laughs> I love that it even they didn't even bother to tell the doctor what his name was. <laughs> You're just like, and her new friend who you've never met, and why should you care? And how did you feel about that cliffhanger? I I, I would have cared more if the next time hadn't immediately spoiled that they weren't going to die. Yeah. 
yeah, that's pretty much pretty much where I am. Like, obviously, they were not going to kill Yaz at the end of episode two. But maybe don't show it 45 seconds later. Yeah, make us think that there might actually be some consequences to whatever's about to happen. You know, because maybe they wouldn't kill her, but maybe they something would happen like when Rose got flooded with uh, Time Vortex energy and ended up the bad wolf and spreading that throughout the world. Or when uh, Amy's embryos got flooded with Time Vortex energy and River Song exists. On On that note, though, I'm not entirely sure they have spoiled us as to what's happening, because if you watch the next time trailer and then the, the, the second trailer they put out a few days later and the promo pictures, it looks like something weird's going on. Because in the next time trailer, Yaz is in her police uniform in like a police car and sees a weeping angel in the background of her mirror. Some of the promo shots have her and the doctor playing a video game in what looks like her family's house. And then there are other pictures that show her, Dan, and Vinder in what appears to be like division armor holding guns that look like division guns. And the doctor's wearing an entirely different coat. Yes, that was that was the thing that the internet was super excited about. They're like, new coat, new coat. But I think there's significance to that. I have a theory. And, oh, and there has to be. And And there's been a lot of speculation about this between the division stuff and the new coat and the title of the episode being once comma upon time is a lot of people are thinking that it could be a flashback episode to whatever happened on the planet time that got swarm and azure banned from the temple and that the division were involved because the doctor's coat is roughly the same shade of blue as Ruth's coat is when she's the doctor in Fugitive of the Jadoon. Oh, interesting. Because my my thought when I saw that coat was they just switched the lining color and the fabric color. Which is also totally possible. Like I, I this is very much like speculation based on little, but but it's because she's wearing that coat in the same pictures and footage that Yaz, Dan, and Vinder are in division getup. And the theory is that for whatever reasons, they are experiencing this flashback as though they're in it. And so it may be like the doctor, for whatever reasons, has flashback to something Ruth did. And it's just like like audience shorthand for us to care about a bunch of new characters. But it's not actually Dan, Yaz, and Vinder. I always enjoy when shows do that, though. I think it's I think it's fun just to pop them into other characters and be like, we're going to aggressively point out the parallels of these stories and i think i think that may be what's happening but i also think there is something to be said about the the summary for next week's episode mentions that all of time is happening at once or something along those lines so it's also entirely possible that we're getting some kind of not necessarily like exactly like turn left but some kind of episode that's playing with multiple timelines and potentially Focusing on Yaz. I know you're you're real happy about a Turn Left episode. For folks who don't know, Turn Left is my absolute favorite Doctor Who episode. <laughs> it is a remarkable piece of drama. I think that would be so much fun. It's always fun to see them playing with time. I mean, they they've got time travel, but actually when they get to play with time is always cool. They don't they don't try to write themselves into any sort of complex box with 
10 different rules that the writers and directors completely disagree about, but they've always just done what they wanted to do with time. And sometimes it has consequences and we get to see that and it's cool. I agree. I've always appreciated Doctor Who's sort of irreverent behavior toward rules of any kind. Where just like sometimes you can't do certain things in time and sometimes you can and sometimes you change the past and it has a big impact on the future and sometimes it doesn't. And so I think because they're so irreverent about it, it makes the times where those consequences happen like more special because it's like, oh, they've done something bad if now things are having a problem. And it's fun because it gets you to step out of the context of time as a linear narrative in a way that if we repeatedly had, oh, this action has consequences, this action has consequences, this action has consequences, butterfly effect. Yeah. That's all within the structure of linear time. I agree. I think this season is really playing on that idea of, because they're definitely doing something with like multiple universes. Because I think in one of the promotional materials they mentioned that that swarm and azure are from a different universe yeah i think we did talk about that a bit in our um blatant speculation episode (laughs) i think but so between doing multiple universes and now doing stuff with really messing with time i think i think it's just a really fun way of leaning into just the chaos of it all especially in the context of the only concrete stuff we got from the temple of atropos was that if left unchecked time would just destroy everything so the idea of doing something that that potentially builds on that concept is just like really like immediately attention grabbing where i'm like oh what's going on is like what is happening why is yaz in all of these different locations like i just this episode for me even more so than the first one was just like a tease for the next one, which is, I think, why we've jumped so quickly into talking about an episode we haven't seen yet. This is, yeah. Because aside from the Santaran stuff, which, like, was fun, but was also kind of disposable, Mm -hmm. there's nothing else to talk about. Yeah, but we want to talk about the concept of uh, this wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey ball of stuff is a wrecking ball. Yeah. That is compelling. Yes, and I'm just... I really hope that they they lean into that. That is just, if you're going to suggest that the very idea of time could be the most destructive force in the universe, then like commit to it. Go off the wall. I want I want next week's episode to be something that Stephen Moffat wishes he'd thought of. Yes. In terms of just going like balls to the wall with timey wimey. But RTD era Stephen Moffat. Oh, well, yeah. Although I think, I think even later Stephen Moffat had some good timey-wimey stuff when he wasn't doing the big arcs. He did. He definitely did. Like, I think, I think Listen, Listen and, and Heaven Sent were really good examples of him playing around with causality. Heaven Sent was the one where he was stuck in, like, the compact disc, right? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I didn't find that episode compelling at all. I found that very boring. You were in like the minority of people. That's, I know. No, I'm like... aware of that. <laughs> I am well aware of that. 
but I'm just like sitting here and it's it's everything that I want an episode to be because you've got the time loop which is like my favorite thing you've got this like compelling consequences to time and it's incredibly character driven and you're basically just watching a one-man play and it's should be phenomenal and I just did, wasn't able to get into it but speaking of uh having an opinion that is perhaps inconsistent with the majority you and I have we're not quite as in love with this episode as a lot of the internet seems to be that this week's episode war of the Santarans people really seem to like this one a lot more than last week really is that what you got from the internet I've seen a lot of at least in my corners of the internet I've seen a lot of like this is the best episode we've gotten in years and I'm like that's interesting because in my little corner of the internet i've had a lot of people dislike the episode it was boring or again too vague or they just are sick of the way chibnall writes things i would say i don't think this episode was boring for what it was doing it's an hour long but i didn't feel like they were wasting time you know what i mean oh yeah no i definitely don't necessarily agree that it was boring i'm just yeah. saying that uh, oh no i, I know i Tumblr just seems to have a more critical view of the episode <laughs> than uh your your uh subreddits yeah so it was interesting in the past few days to be like hearing this like seeing all this like unbridled praise and i'm like yeah it was okay <laughs> yeah. i had a good time it's fine <laughs> i ain't got any major complaints i was like i was fine you know what? I'm disappointed in the fact that they said it in a historical era and they did not take advantage of the fact that they could do historical era costumes. You had soldiers in a uniform. You had the doctor in the same outfit she always wears. And you had Mary Seacole. And that was it. The only cool outfit we got was Mary Seacole. But speaking of soldiers, I, I, this isn't about the costumes, but I did want to touch on this. I really hated General Logan. Yeah, but he seemed almost like a caricature of an yeah, 1860s Yeah, it was just man. so, like, blatant what they were doing with him. It was that that sort of, like, that over-the-top, painfully obvious stuff they sometimes do on this show. And I was just, like, so frustrated by it. I was like, he doesn't have to be here. I don't, I don't need this. It's not like he was a historical character. He, he, unless maybe he was, but we wouldn't know that because they don't really tell us much about what's going on. And it was just, they, they played up his, like, betrayal as though it was remotely surprising. I was like, no, of course he was going to do this. You set it up, like, ten minutes ago. And that he was, like, the only soldier to not be brutally massacred. Oh, yeah. He, he was, like, down and out, too. And then all of a sudden he was just alive. I was like, oh, God, I got 15 more minutes of this guy. I feel like he just showed up to be alive for the sake of blowing up the Centauran ships so that the Doctor could have that angry monologue. I, don't, I, I kind of wish, and I, and I, this is silly because I don't know. I mean, uh, who knows? It could have worked considering how little they explained what the Santarans were actually doing. But it kind of, I think it might have been more interesting. Okay, hear me out. You know how in the modern day stuff, they're, they're, the whole thing is that they're building like time ships so that they can go back to all of the periods in Earth's history and just slowly take it over, right? That's the plot. Was that the plot? Because it was very vague. They were just there to be overlords and impose a curfew. Well, they had said that they, they were building, because that's why Dan had to destroy all the, all the ships. They were building time ships to go take over Earth's past. 
what I think would have been potentially more interesting than somehow there's just one time ship in the past already is what if that time ship was only in the past because Dan hadn't stopped them from launching that invasion. And the moment that he stopped them launching the invasion, the Santarans in the Crimean War just were gone. And they turned back into Russians. Yeah. That, I think, would have justified the the split timeline of having somebody in the past and somebody in the present. Yeah, because otherwise it's like, why are they building all of these timeships in modern-day Liverpool as opposed to in the Crimean War when they're already in the Crimean War. Like, I think they said this ship was like a, like a test. Like, they, they, so they didn't know if it would work, and, they, and it worked, and so then they started, you know, the full-scale operation. But it, again, it was all just so vaguely done that I think... It would have been more impactful to connect them. Yeah, connect them more than just they can talk to each other. Although I guess you lose if the Crimean War ship is from the future of the modern day stuff. You can't necessarily talk to that. That line of communication may no longer work. I don't know. Yeah. They'll have to do some sort of like blink thing where they have a recording and a script. And Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just felt like with, with them splitting it up in the time, there was a chance to do some more time shenanigans. Instead, it was like they wanted to hit all of the, like the beats you normally hit in a normal series where, the companion has a modern day story, a future story, a celebrity historical, some kind of modern day like invasion. It was like they wanted to hit all of them in one episode because we don't have time to do separate ones. Which, I mean, I do get that. I do get them not wanting to waste time. But it's also like at what cost? Yeah. Maybe just pick the thing you want to do and do it. You know what? I will say the Carvinista got some moments in this episode and i know you're going to want to talk about them so i don't want you to forget my sweet my sweet summer child yeah carvenusta just comes in like ex machina and just saves dan it's kind of amazing i love that but we also we also get this line that carvenista says something to the extent of they always blame me and so i want to know i want to know about his backstory but i want to know if he's always getting in trouble, was his assignment to Dan a punishment and that's why he dislikes Dan so much? <laughs> I'd love that. I I kind of like the idea that, like, Carvinist is, like, this big, bad, like, bounty hunter or whatever, but actually he's not. And he just keeps getting blamed for bad things happening when he's just, like, he's, like, the Firefly crew trying to do good things, but it goes south. I was just sitting on the bench. <laughs> I just, Carvinista and Dan have such an iconic chemistry they do it's just it's so much fun it's instantly fun it just even from last episode when they're at each other's throats it's like i would have watched at least another five minutes of them just bantering at each other absolutely in both episodes i kind of love the like they've gotten to a point at the end of war of the santarans where they have like a mutual respect for each other while also, like, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> They're gonna. They're gonna see each other again. Well, I, I know he looks like he's gonna be in the next episode. Because he's in the cast list. And the Cybermen are gonna be in that episode, too. So I'm wondering if the Cybermen are trying to take advantage of 
the chaos that the flux is causing in the same way that the Santarans did and the Cybermen try to like invade Earth and Carvanista and the other Lupari have to stop them. But would they stop them? Because aren't Cybermen technically human? It depends on exactly how they are defining human at the moment. Well, they each have, each Lupari has a designated human, right? If the uh, Cybermen successfully upgrade the humans to become Cybermen, then the Lupari, instead of being paired with human, are now paired with a Cyberman, who is technically human. So whose side are they ultimately going to be on? I, I think the, the, the theorizing that's been happening is that they have not actually broken through the Lupari defense yet. So these are Cybermen who were converted elsewhere and may or may not be human. Ah. So they haven't gotten to Earth yet. Because they, they, they mentioned that the only reason the Santaran made it to Earth was that they slipped in right before the, uh, the Lupari defense went live. Whereas the only footage we've seen of the Cybermen looks like it's on a ship like Carvanista's ship. So I think uh, my my wonder is, are they trying to invade and are trying to get through the ship? Or maybe I am completely off track. But either way, it looks like Carvanista is going to be in the episode because he's on the cast list. Well, that's good, especially if the episode is going to be a fun romp through multiple timelines. You got to have your boy there. I got to have my boy. What a good boy. I still... <laughs> No, I want to talk about my good boy for a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> that, because I don't know if we really talked about how good that costume is last week. It's such a good costume. We didn't talk about that. Because it, it, it's like, it is every bit as good as the Chewbacca costume is. In terms of like, it looks real. The only bit that sometimes takes me out of it is exactly like where the mouth of the costume meets the mouth of the actor playing carvanista but that's what's so great because it's it's a practical costume you have so many shows where if somebody had a full face getup like that it'd be cgi yeah or they would do what uh, doom patrol does and they would have a stunt actor in it and have the actual actor just do a voiceover which just makes it so cool and i think that's one of the benefits of having a smaller budget is that you don't you can't always afford to do that. Yeah, you can't do the special effects. You have to do the practical effects. And that just makes for a better production. And I think, honestly, like, maybe they could have gotten something that, like, looked more realistic with CGI. I just, I think the money was so much better spent on on the costume and the prosthetic because you actually get the actor's performance and because we're pretty sure it is the same actor doing the voice, it's this unified thing. It's it's like when um Doug Jones does all of the all the work he does. Yes, and you have to see the acting around the prosthetics and how to have that body language and those facial tics and have it relate to the audience, even though half of what you're doing is completely obscured by the prosthetics. And I think I think they've managed to do that with Carvinista, where like you can actually look at his face and see what his emotion is. He doesn't just look. You can, and it's just so good. And just I love I I I know he's comic relief, but he's comic relief in such like a in in the same kind of authentic way that Dan is, 
where it doesn't feel like he's trying to be funny. He just is funny. Yeah, he's not a he's not a showman the way that some of the comic relief characters like Jack have been. Or like Strax, if we're going for like prosthetic heavy aliens. You know the actor who played Strax played one of the Santaran in the episode. In this episode. Yes, he actually played a couple. So there was so the one that Mary Seacole had captured. Mm-hmm. That was Dan Starkey, who plays Strax. Oh, that's cool. And he was in last week's episode as um not the I think he was the one who was like in the like the hologram in last week's episode. Because there was the one that was on the ship and then he was talking to like a guy. And he said, Oh, you look so old. Well, yeah, I know that. So there, there, there were two Santaran actors, and Dan Starkey was one of them, and he plays Strax. And I think it's it's nice to see him in another Santaran role again because he played a Santaran before Strax in um, season four. Yeah, I was going to say with, with Donna because I remember Catherine Tate talking about him in an interview once. But he was very much still like explicitly comic relief in that story too. Whereas I don't necessarily think that he was like, here I thought, because that, that Santarin got to be a little bit threatening. He was still sort of just comic relief, but like there were those undercurrents of like menace that I thought was really nice to get to see from the guy who normally plays Strax. Yeah. I was like, ah, yeah. So it's I, I just find it always nice when the person you're able to give the performer who normally does, you know, the generic monster, a specific variation of that monster they're able to do. Yeah. To, to prove that, you know, if you want to make Suntaran scary, okay, let's use the, use the Suntarans and just use the Suntaran actors to make them scary. Would you be open to them coming back this season? If somehow, you know, like by the finale, like all of the villains throughout the season are brought together in like a like a Pandorica opens kind of way. I don't know. I mean, I feel like they sort of played their hand. They shot their shot and it didn't work. I just don't think after they've lost the way that they lost, that there could narratively be a good way to bring them back for the finale. That's fair. And I have like no reason to believe they're in the finale. At this point, I'm just like, I feel like anything that appears could appear again. Like I could see a world where somehow Mary Seacole's in the finale. I mean, generally speaking with the rule of sci-fi is no body, no death, they can come back. When especially I think with speaking on the Mary Seacole thing, they were like, almost on the nose with the maybe we'll see each other again thing. Yeah, the doctor didn't erase her memory the same way she did with some other folks that they've met, like um, Ada Lovelace. Yeah. And I mean, and I, and I wonder if that's partially because she expects that once history resets itself, that Mary Seacole will largely just forget she was there at all. Like maybe there's that. It still, it still feels like to me like an intentional choice. Of, oh, Definitely. Of, like, leaving the door open. But it also feels like a weird door to leave open if you're not going to walk through it. Because it was just left more open than most historicals are. Like, the Doctor doesn't, like, leave Shakespeare at the end of the Shakespeare episode saying, See you again, bud! 
No, he he leaves Shakespeare at the end of that episode saying, oh, shoot, that's Elizabeth. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, of the historical characters that we know the doctor meets more than once. (laughs) Yeah, it just felt like a like like a weirdly specific choice they made there. And I mean, I, I, I don't see we know nothing about the finale, but I, 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 I can't imagine how she would play into it since it'll presumably be something to do with the division and probably time lords and all sorts of sci-fi nonsense. Do you think the division is connected to the Temple of Atropos? Define connected. Could the division have started as worshippers of the Temple of Atropos that got kicked out of the temple? because their ideas were a bit too radicalized. I don't know if I would say the division specifically could have that connection, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Time Lords did. Like, I I suspect that the division, the Time Lords, and Swarm and Azure are all, and the Temple of Atropos are all connected in a very deep way. I mean, some, and we know they're, some of those are connected from, they've said so in the case of Swarm and Azure, or speculation one can arrive at fairly easily by looking at footage and pictures. But, but it's just, with everything going on, it seems almost implausible that somehow the Time Lords aren't also involved in this temple. I just think choosing Atropos of all the fates was such a choice because she's the one who cuts the thread. She doesn't weave it. She doesn't create it. She cuts it. She's the one who decides the fates. And I think that paired with just the speculation that we have about the division potentially being connected to some sort of controversial thing with the Time Lords, the division and the temple having a history, either a negative one or maybe they're collaborators, I don't know. It just feels inevitable to me. But that might just be me reading way too much into it. No, I mean, sure, you might be. But it's also like, for as like plot twisty as Chibnall can be, his plots are also not hard to follow. That seems like the, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean that in a, that's like the logical, like, next step. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, he doesn't try to pull plot twists out of thin air for shock value. Yeah, we've been told the Division are a big part of this. We know that Swarm and the Doctor have some kind of history from that the Doctor can't remember. The implication there being that it's part of her time in the Division, because we know that's what's been erased from her memory. We know that Swarm and Azure have some kind of history with the Temple, because the Glowing Triangle tells us they do. The next logical step, then, is how are the Division involved, since the Division and Swarm clearly have some kind of history. Are you really going to tell me they're not involved in whatever went down at this temple? So I, I, I agree with you that choosing this particular fate to name the temple after feels, again, like a really specific choice that I don't think would just be made on a on a coincidence i think that we have to tune in next week and find out so if those of you listening at home would like to play along with us and hear our thoughts on that you can tune in next week when we break down chapter three of flux once upon time
Thank you guys so much for listening and have a great day.